0: On the 24th of October 1956 the English language announcer for Free Radio Budapest shared an alarming news story with the citizens of Hungary. In the early hours of the morning, Soviet troops have started an attack against the Hungarian capital. It was the third time in 12 years that hostile foreign tanks had rolled into Budapest, but the impact of this invasion was much longer lasting. In this episode, I examine the Hungarian Revolution of 1956. At the start of the 20th century, Budapest was one of the seats of government of the dual monarchy of the powerful Austro-Hungarian Empire, by landmass the second largest country in Europe. But despite the grandiose palaces and its impressive military, it was a fractured nation. In the 1990s, religious and ethnic differences bubbled to the surface, causing Yugoslavia to descend into civil war and violence, but back in 1918, most of the territory that eventually became Yugoslavia was just one segment of a much larger and vast multicultural empire. Its inhabitants spoke more than a dozen languages. Religiously, it was divided among Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, Jews and Muslims, while Poles, Romanians, Italians and Czechs were among the multitude of ethnic groups living uneasily alongside each other under the rule of an ailing monarch. The defeat of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and its allies in World War I was the first step on the road towards the events of 1956. In fact, in 1919, the Soviet-style communist regime briefly seized power in Hungary before the forces of nationalism arose and the monarchy was restored. But two decades later, under pressure from its powerful neighbours, Hungary allied itself with its erstwhile ally Germany and joined the Axis powers in World War II. Initially, Hungary was focused on fighting the USSR and aiding German attempts to conquer Yugoslavia. Despite the unease of a conservative, yet comparatively moderate king and prime minister, Hungary inevitably declared war on the Western powers and it became a key ally of Nazi Germany. The role of Hungary in the war, though, was a peculiar one. The zeal of excessive violence of Hungarian troops prompted one shocked German military officer to describe their sorties as murder tourism. Conversely, the Hungarian regime had refused to participate in the by then Europe-wide deportation of Jews to death camps. By the early 1940s, there were over 800,000 Jews living in Hungary, comprised of individuals who called Hungary home and unknown numbers of refugees from the surrounding nations. The prime minister, Miklós Kállay passed a variety of measures to remove Jewish people from official positions and to seize their property. The kind of measures that would have shocked the world were it not for the much more egregious crimes being committed by the Nazis. A Miklos Kali is integral to another event that paved the way for the events of 1956. As in 1943, seeing that the tide of war had turned he began to secretly negotiate an armistice with the Allied powers. The problem facing Calais was the Soviets had already overrun neighbouring Romania, another nation that had allied itself with the Nazis. Hungary was essentially still a country full of aristocrats, political conservatives, and it was largely Christian. None of these elements were compatible with the Soviet style regime, but at this point their allies were months away. Despite offering an unconditional surrender in the event of the Allied forces reaching Germany, the Western Allies were not in a position to offer Hungary any assurances. For one thing, the post-war division of spheres of influence had already been negotiated, and Hungary was destined to be in the Soviet realm. Ironically, while the Western Allies couldn't help Hungary, Kelly's plea actually helped them. German spies got wind of the negotiations, and invaded Hungary, installing a puppet fascist regime which remained in control for the remainder of the war. This action drew German troops away from the rest front, something which made the daunting D-Day invasion marginally easier. The German invasion saw Kalei deported to a Nazi concentration camp, along with 434,000 Jews, who having enjoyed Kalei's anti-Semitic policies, had survived until the final months of the war. While 80% of those Jews were immediately gassed upon arrival, Kallai survived the war when fleeing SS men abandoned his concentration camp. But the head of state in Hungary above both Kallai and his Nazi sympathising successor was Miklas Horthy, an admiral, who'd been appointed as regent when the military, whilst restoring the monarchy, refused to accept the return of the wartime King Charles in 1918. Horthy was said to be anti-communist, but by 1944, he determined that the Soviets were the lesser of two evils when compared with the Nazis. The aristocratic World War I hero and Protestant found himself going cap in hand to negotiate an armistice with the communist tyrant Joseph Stalin. Having heard news of the atrocities at Auschwitz, Horthy, an avowed anti Semite, halted the deportation of Jews. But Hitler, in a desperate move sent stormtroopers to kidnap his son and facing the risk of his son being killed, Horthy recanted his deal with the Soviets, while another Nazi puppet regime took control of Hungary. Despite Horthy's radio announcement of the initial detente with the Soviets, the Nazi intervention and about turn had proved completely unnecessary, as Hungarian forces had simply ignored the order and continued to fight the Soviets. But despite their resilience, by the 29th of December 1944, Budapest was encircled. The capital fell in February, and hostilities ceased, with the Hungarians and remaining Germans defeated by the 4th of April. In the immediate aftermath of the conquest, the invading Soviets rounded up and deported hundreds of thousands of Hungarians and ethnic Germans who were living in Hungary. An estimated 200,000 of these deportees later died in labour camps in the USSR. The last months of the war had been devastating for Budapest. 80% of buildings in the city centre had been destroyed, not a single bridge across the Danube was still standing, and tens of thousands of civilians had perished in just a few months. The once heterogeneous imperial state, having seen its Jewish population largely exterminated, and its German population expelled, and with territory having been ceded to Czechoslovakia, Hungary had become a decidedly homogenous nation. From a Soviet perspective, Hungary had been cut down to size, but as a consequence of defeats in two world wars, what remained was a nation-state, with ideas greatly conflicting with communism. The first world war had shown the shortcomings of imperialism, whilst the second, had exposed the Wagner-esque myth of fascism. But despite this, the Hungarians, unlike the Russians 30 years earlier, had not embraced the alternative offered by theorists such as Marx and Lenin. Consequently, when free elections were held in 1945, with Soviet forces visibly present, the Communist Party, which while small, had deep roots in Hungary, mustered a mere 17% of the vote, while the independent Smallholders Party under Zoltan Tildy, won 57%. As the name implies, his party was representative of peasants, the middle class, and people with limited land holdings. In other words, it represented the average Joe of post-war Hungary. Despite this, the Allied Control Commission, under pressure from the Soviets, forced the party to form a coalition rather than to govern outright. At the insistence of the Soviets, Communist Party member Laszlo Reich was given the role of interior minister in a coalition government led by Zoltan Tildi. Reich, a lifelong communist who'd only avoided execution under the fascist regime due to the intervention of his high-ranking brother, quickly set about establishing a Soviet-style secret police called the AVO. 30,000 agents were tasked with identifying so-called enemies of the state, a group comprised of pretty much anyone who wasn't a loyal communist. Moderate politicians, even socialists, were rounded up on trumped-up charges of being fascist sympathisers or war criminals. In 1947, the AVO began investigating a supposed conspiracy against Hungarian interests. Top of the list of alleged conspirators was Bela Kovács, General Secretary of the Small party. He was whisked off to Moscow and given a 20-year sentence for anti-Soviet activities. 50 other members of his party were expelled from office, with the result that his party lost its majority. The fear of arrest and persecution drove increasing numbers of progressive politicians to curb their activities and to acquiesce to the Soviet doctrine being shared by Moscow. But even communists weren't safe. Those who deviated from Stalinist principles were branded Trotskyites, or accused of being agents for the Yugoslavian ruler Tito, himself a communist, but one who operated outside of Stalin's orbit. In May 1947, Prime Minister Frank Nagy, facing the twin problems of hyperinflation and Soviet meddling, went on a trip to Switzerland seemingly hoping to muster Western support for his cause. But while he was away, the Soviets kidnapped his son and demanded he resign from office after implicating him in the same false conspiracy that Kovach had been imprisoned for. Fearing for his son, he agreed to step down and was replaced by Laios Dinius, an affluent member of the smallholders' Party, but one who was willing to toe the Soviet line. The head of new elections The newly formed Freedom Party, comprised of many exiled smallholders' members, was banned. Half a million people identified as pre-war fascists were stripped of their voting rights, and the AVO helped to facilitate the creation of tens of thousands of fake ballots. In spite of everything, the Communists only won 22% of the votes, and even their efforts to form a left-wing coalition left them short of a majority. To resolve this issue, they accused one of their major rivals, the Hungarian Independence Party, of election fraud. The 670,000 votes received by that party were discounted, meaning the communists and their allies were effectively in control. Prior to the 1949 elections, they forced a merger with other left-leaning parties, while all the other opposition groups were mostly banned. In the absence of any meaningful opposition, Matthias Rokoshi became the leader of the now fully-fledged communist state. Before the year ended, Hungary was rebranded as the People's Republic of Hungary, a single-party state with a constitution virtually identical to that of the Soviet Union. Having eliminated political opposition, the government began targeting other sources of trouble, including the church. Cardinal Josef Mingenti had been arrested during the war for his outspoken critic of the wartime fascist Arrow Cross government, but he was also no fan of the leftists. In fact, in his criticism of the fascists, he described them as being just as bad as communists. He was also pro-monarchy and continued to use the moniker Prince Primate despite the government banning royal titles. The fact he was of German descent didn't help his cause much either. He became a thorn in the regime's side when he traveled from town to town instructing local officials not to comply with a new law ordering Catholic schools to be turned over to state control. The police put a stop to his one-man crusade by seizing his vehicle, though defiant parishioners around the country responded by ringing the church bells. When the regime seized some of the church's landholdings, Mingenti publicly demanded compensation. He was then accused of being an aristocrat, and the type of individual that egalitarian society proposed by the communists was intent on marginalising. Mingenti was arrested, and accused of, among other things, violating currency laws. In truth, with Budapest in ruins, with the Soviets having forced the nation to pay war reparations, the economy was in dire straits. Mingenti had sought to move funds to American banks to mitigate inflation risk. Before his arrest, he told people, If I confess, it's only because I've been forced to. Eventually, after lengthy torture, he did indeed confess to his alleged crimes and was sentenced to 20 years in jail. A few months later, Laszlo Reich, the man who'd founded the Hungarian secret police, was hoist by his own petard. The Prime Minister, Matthias Rakoshi, possibly viewing him as a potential rival, had him arrested on trumped-up charges of being a foreign agent. Like Mingenti, Rake made his confession as a result of torture, although he was also given an assurance he'd be acquitted if he spilled the beans. He agreed to this demand and pled guilty to all charges in a public forum in Budapest. His accusers, though, we on a deal, and he and his seven so-called co-conspirators were executed. Ryuk was one of an estimated 2,000 Hungarians executed, while Rakosi ran the country. A further hundred thousand were jailed in the same period. Rakosi, having been involved with the short-lived Hungarian Soviet Republic of 1919, had spent most of the interwar years in the USSR where he developed a deep admiration for Stalin. As Hungary's de facto ruler, he attempted to develop a Stalinist-style personality cult around himself, even as his ruinous rush to collectivization further exacerbated Hungary's economic problems. But unfortunately for him, he didn't inherit the established apparatus of a totalitarian state in the way that Stalin did so Rakoshi was basically starting from scratch. Worse still, just a few years into his tenure, his role model and advocate, Joseph Stalin, died. Just three months after Stalin's death, a Hungarian delegation were quizzed in Moscow by the most powerful figures of the day, Khrushchev, Beria, Molotov and Malenkov. Beria, who's notorious as the one-time head of the KGB, Gained that job in the USSR when his predecessor was felt to have gone overboard with persecutions during Stalin's Great Purge. Beria levelled the same criticism at Hungary's Rakosi and his Hungarian secret police. Citing statistics on arrest, Beria said the fact his government had arrested over 10% of the population in a two and a half year period was something that was bound to cause public dissent. The rush to collectivise farms, he said, had been a mistake too. In defending himself, Rokoshi kept restating what he thought was his trump card. Stalin made me do it. A few months earlier, no one would have dared question that logic. But Stalin was now dead, and even his greatest sycophant, Beria, was now willing to state that Stalin was often wrong. The criticism of Rokoshi was withering. He had too much power, he'd ruin the economy, he'd wasted resources on an unwieldy army and caused the quality of life to plummet. He could no longer serve as Prime Minister. Instead, Moscow handed that job to his moderate rival, Imre Nagy. But for reasons of continuity, or perhaps fearing problems if they showed weakness, they consented for Akoshi to stay on as the first secretary of the Communist Party. A powerful role as leader of the party, if not the country. For his part, Narch, born to a poor Lutheran farming family, became interested in communism while in a Russian prisoner of war camp during World War One. After that conflict he joined the Red Army and for a time he was rumored to have been one of the assassins of the Russian royal family, though most scholars now dispute this claim. Nonetheless, He became a party member, Soviet citizen and after the war he was sent back to his homeland to help establish the communist regime. Therefore Khrushchev and Beria may reasonably have thought that Naj would be a safe pair of hands. The problem was, they'd given him mixed signals and in the wake of Rakoshi's dismissal, he'd been criticised for among other things, not allowing critics, such as Naj, to have their say. Discussion is good they said. Unquestioned rule is bad. Naj took this to mean he could relax control of the press and allow public discussion of government policies, even dissent. And unsurprisingly, there was plenty of that as agricultural production fell, industrial production stalled and quality consumer goods became scarce commodities. General dissatisfaction with the communist rule had been rumbling away for years. But whereas Rokoshi silenced his critics, Naj did not. And Rokoshi, in his new role, began using public rebukes against Naj and started a propaganda campaign against him to blame Hungary's problems on his rightist management of the economy. The Soviets concurred and felt Naj had gone too far. He was consequently sacked and stripped of his various political titles. Rokosi was empowered to wrestle back control, but Soviet actions again threw Hungary into crisis in February 1956, when Nikita Khrushchev delivered a devastating attack on the rule of his predecessor, Joseph Stalin. The speech was held in a closed-door meeting, but a transcript was leaked to the Western press. In the speech, Khrushchev eviscerated the cult of personality Stalin had created, his brutal purges, and his reckless pursuit of unrealistic goals. These were the exact same things Rakoshi had been accused of. Colleges and coffee houses were soon abuzz with discussion of similarities between Rakoshi and Stalin. Realizing the trouble brewing, the Soviets again fired Rakoshi, though his replacement Erno Gero was a close ally of his, but the genie was out of the bottle. The public had voiced their displeasure and simply removing Rakoshi was never going to be enough. In another attempt to placate the masses, the government arranged a formal public burial for Lazlo Reich, seven years after his betrayal and execution by Rakoshi. Reich posthumously became a rallying figure for critics of the government, Despite the fact he had created the hated secret police and diligently carried out its work right up until his elimination, Radio Free Europe at this time regularly broadcast information across Eastern Europe, and the multilingual reports kept people behind the Iron Curtain abreast of developments elsewhere. For example, Khrushchev's condemnation of Stalin had been shared on the station, as had violent protests in Poland during 1956. The Red Army had not intervened in Poland as the idea of Russian troops attacking protesters there was politically sensitive given much of the country had previously been under direct Russian rule for centuries. The Poles will have to handle it themselves and the regime there eventually agreed to make some concessions to the protesters that included a reduction in the Soviet military presence in the nation. It was a sharp contrast to what had happened in East Germany three years earlier, where similar protests were violently quashed by the Red Army as opposed to just domestic forces. Feeling emboldened in a seemingly more relaxed post stalin world, students in Sheget with faculty support reformed the Union of Hungarian University and Academy Students, an organisation that had long since been banned. And it wasn't long before news of this move reached Budapest, where students at the University of Technology and Commerce were invited to join the group and presented with a list of extraordinary demands for the government. Demand number one was the expulsion of Soviet troops. The removal of Stalin's statue was number 13 on the list and closer to home, they wanted Nagy to return to office and Rakoshi and the Defense Secretary to be investigated for a multitude of crimes. They demanded alterations to the national flag, normalized relations with Yugoslavia, details of war reparation debts to be publicly revealed, and above all, they wanted free and fair elections. Essentially, they wanted the entire communist infrastructure of the country to be removed. And they were not alone. The following day, 20,000 protesters gathered in front of a statue of Joseph Bem. He was significant for two reasons. Firstly, he was a Polish general, so it was an implicit nod to the recent problems in Poland. But secondly, he was a Hungarian war hero who'd fought in the Austrian revolution of 1848 after which Hungary became a partner with Austria, rather than a territory under its rule. Writer Peter Veres, who'd served in the last pre-communist government, demanded full sovereignty for Hungary, and the crowd launched into nationalistic chants and cheers. Erno Guerra, the de facto leader of the nation, responded to these protests with a national radio broadcast in which he lambasted the usual suspects the intelligentsia, liberal students, and western influences for causing all of the trouble. He flatly rejected the demands of the growing band of dissenters. Subsequently, the crowd took matters into their own hands, and achieved one of their aims by destroying the statue of Stalin in Budapest. The same evening, the crowd gathered at the national radio station, hoping to broadcast their list of demands. But the secret police had already gathered around the building and refused to allow access to it. Somehow, a rumour spread that the secret police had already killed some peaceful protesters. A riot ensued. Having radioed for support, the police tried to secretly funnel weapons to their overstretched colleagues by smuggling them in an ambulance. But in all of the chaos, as bricks were thrown, windows smashed and Soviet emblems torn down, Someone in the crowd broke into the ambulance and found the horde of guns. They were quickly distributed among the protesters. Next, the army was sent in, but many of the Hungarian troops refused to tackle the protesters, and some even switched sides and joined the rebels. With domestic forces having failed to quell the trouble, the Red Army rolled into Budapest, surrounding key buildings and taking up positions in opposition to the armed protesters. Naj was hastily reinstalled as Prime Minister and made a radio broadcast appealing for calm. Despite his request, violence continued, with protesters attacking secret police in retaliation for the shooting of students and armed individuals exchanging fire with the Red Army. Naj then chose to release Janusz Kadur from prison. He'd previously served as the Interior Minister before being locked up during one of the purges orchestrated by the former prime minister. At this point, a visiting delegation from the Soviet Union, including KGB chief Ivan Serov, replaced Gero as first secretary of the party with the newly released Yash Kadar. On paper, a freed political prisoner and the popular Naj looked like a moderate ticket, but despite his trials and tribulations, Kadar was avowedly pro-Soviet. The changes did nothing to alleviate tensions on the street and violence erupted again in front of the parliament building. The cause of events for what followed has been disputed. It's variously been claimed that Hungarian secret police shot from the parliament roof at protesters, or vice versa. Alternatively, that a warning shot from a Red Army tank sparked the mayhem. But somehow or other, fire was exchanged and seven Soviet tanks protecting the parliament responded by pummeling the surrounding buildings. Another Soviet tank in a nearby street then fired directly into the protesters. It's indicative of the chaos at the time and indeed the secretive nature of the communist regime that estimates for the number of casualties ranged from 75 to over 1,000. By this time, protests had erupted elsewhere in the country. and The Hungarian Air Force, in addition to the army, fired into civilian crowds, causing more death and destruction. But within Budapest, the army was fractured. Colonel Malata was tasked with negotiating a ceasefire with the armed militants outside the Killian barracks. But he suddenly decided to switch sides. His troops then joined the protesters and helped prevent Soviet troops from accessing the base. His actions earned him a promotion and he became the Minister of Defence. Meanwhile, Cardinal Mingenti was freed from prison along with a host of other political prisoners. Josef Dudash, a former member of Parliament within the Smallholders' Party put together an armed militia of 400 men. Dudash had previously fled Hungary and spent three years in a Romanian jail before being released and returning to his homeland just a year before the revolution. But Dudash was a wild card. On one hand, he tried to insert himself as chief negotiator with the Soviets, while on the other, his militants indiscriminately killed anyone with communist or Soviet ties. Another character in the mix was Bela Kurali, a Hungarian general and war hero who defied orders and ensured humane treatment for 400 Jews held prisoner under his command during the war. This action later saw him recognized by Israel, but at this point he'd been languishing in prison, having been captured by the Soviets at the end of the war. Naj hoped he'd be able to unify the country, and he attempted to do so by drawing anti-Soviet groups together and attacking the headquarters of the Communist Party. Known Soviet supporters were executed on the spot, but Hungary was far from unified. While a majority seemed to want to cut ties with the Soviets, there were plenty of nationalists, among them World War II veterans, who were equally hostile to Naj and his albeit more moderate brand of communism. In some towns, communist emblems were torn down while in others, pro-Soviet-Hungarians fought against the countrymen. But on the 28th of October, Naj announced a ceasefire between the warring Hungarian elements, whilst also announcing an amnesty for political prisoners and the disbandment of the hated secret police. On November the 1st, he went even further and withdrew Hungary from the Warsaw Pact. He sought to position Hungary as a neutral country much like neighbouring Austria, aligned with neither side in the ongoing Cold War. This meant Soviet forces would have to leave. The Soviets said they were happy to discuss the proposal and arranged a parley with Colonel Malata on November 3rd. Moscow had grappled with the Hungarian issue for weeks. General Zhukov was against military intervention, as was Khrushchev. Hungarian first secretary, Kadov, traveled to Moscow and implored the Soviets to intervene. A surprising move, considering that just five years earlier, he'd been jailed on account of his supposed spying for the West. The Chinese leader, Mao Zedong, also pressured the Soviets to intervene. And Khrushchev responded by setting off on a quick-fire trip around the Warsaw Pact nations, as well as Yugoslavia. The latter, of course, was controlled, by the comparatively moderate Tito, whom liberal Hungarian communists had previously falsely been accused of spying for. In that context, it's perhaps surprising that Tito encouraged Khrushchev to invade Hungary. But his motivation had much less to do with Hungary, and more to do with his own problems, as events in Hungary had spilled over into the ranks of Croatian nationalists. ...who was starting to cause problems in Yugoslavia. As the Soviets, through their future leader Andropov... ...assured the Hungarians that no force would be used... ...tanks began to amass around Hungary. On November the 3rd... ...Malata showed up expecting to negotiate with the Soviets... ...but he was immediately arrested. That night, Soviet tanks... ...which had been creeping across the border for days... plowed into Budapest... They were supported by airstrikes, in what the Soviets called Operation Whirlwind. Naj made his last broadcast on November the 4th, before the free radio service was cut. This is Hungary calling. This is Hungary calling. The last remaining station. Early this morning, the Soviet troops launched a general attack on Hungary. Fighting raged throughout the country for the next five days as a mixture of Hungarian army and peasants armed with Molotov cocktails did their best to fend off the attack. Fearing capture, the recently released Bela Kurali fled to Austria from where he eventually made his way to the United States. The militant Josef Dudash was enticed into Parliament with an offer of peace talks. Once there, he was arrested. Prime Minister Naj and his closest comrades found refuge in the Yugoslavian embassy. They were promised safe passage to exile, but upon leaving, they also were immediately arrested. Cardinal Mingenti was offered refuge in the United States, but he refused to leave his country. Instead, he spent the next 15 years trapped and the United States Embassy in Budapest. Naj was tried by the new regime run by Kadar, the man he'd released from prison during the protests. Dudash and Melita were also tried in secret, and all three men were found guilty of conspiracy and executed within the following two years. Twelve years later, when a series of similar events began to unfold in Czechoslovakia, under the liberalizing Alexander Dubček, Moscow's initial desire was to swiftly intervene, but the plan was halted by the Hungarian leader, Kadar. He viewed Dubček's reforms favorably and thought military intervention would be a mistake. This despite his encouragement of the Soviet invasion to quote a similar movement in his own country, a political move that enabled him. To remain the effective ruler of Hungary for 30 years, until the very last months of his life.